Hello, this is Allison Carter, Occupational Therapist with the Milestones Podcast. This is episode 84. Today I wanted to get back into some early intervention topics. Don't forget, you can earn CEUs for listening to this podcast. All you have to do is go to my website, mymidwesttherapy.com, find the episode you want to listen to, or that you already listened to, and click on the yellow Add to Cart button under that episode. This will direct you to PayPal, where you can pay for the test. Once you do that, PayPal will notify me that you've made the purchase, and I will email you the PDF file with the test and other forms to complete. Please give me a little time to get those to you. If I'm not around my computer, I won't be able to send it right away. Please know that I will send it to you as soon as I can. Also, check your spam box because sometimes my emails go there. I also want to say thank you to those of you who continue to support me by making your Amazon purchases through the links on my website. I really appreciate you taking the time to go to my site and use those links. I know it has been way too long since my last episode. I am currently wrapping up the end of the school year, so things are very busy right now. But I wanted to thank you for checking back in and listening today. I received an email recently from an OT who works in early intervention asking about my experience with determining frequency of early intervention services. I would like to address this today. My first thoughts on this are that this is very subjective. Over the years, through experience, I feel like I have a good understanding of what is appropriate for each child and family. I was curious, though, after getting this email, to see if there is any research behind this to help those practitioners who don't have this experience yet. I found it funny and, I guess, validating that when I Google searched this question, I was not able to find a clear answer. All of, the, all of the sites I found said things like, it is up to the occupational therapist's professional judgment. So, based on that, I think that what I just said was accurate. However, this still doesn't actually help anyone who needs real answers. I did find one research study from 2016 that was basically a review of occupational therapy-specific journals where the researchers reviewed any published journal article they could find that discussed the frequency, duration, and intensity of occupational therapy services with the 0 to 21 population. The article is called Dosage Parameters in Pediatric Outcome Studies Reported in Nine Peer-Reviewed Occupational Therapy Journals from 2008 to 2014, a content analysis. Understand that this is only a review of journal articles, not a specific study of frequency and etc. of therapy. They basically compared the studies that found that they found that specifically laid out frequency, duration, and intensity of services. Then the researchers for this study compared all of the data to come up with their results. I will spare you the time reading the study and tell you the answer. The answer is, quote, This first attempt at describing and calculating dosage related to pediatric occupational therapy practice 
indicates that evidence is lacking within the published literature to adequately guide OT dosage decisions. Further research related to dosage in pediatric occupational therapy practice is needed. End quote. So, there. From what I could see, there is no research-based answer for this never-ending question either. My answer for you is, it depends on the child, the family, and the setting. Not a good answer, I know. So let's get into some possible scenarios. This may help those of you with less experience have a better place to start. This also largely depends on your state or country. In some states, the early intervention program is set up so that there is what I would call an evaluation team. This is a group of therapists who are designated to provide all of the evaluations for the clients in their area. There are some benefits to this for the program because there will be consistency with testing protocol and team collaboration with therapists who become familiar with each other's testing procedures and the process can become very routine. The team will know each other well, and can determine pretty accurately which member should do the evaluation for each child based on the family concerns and the team member's experience and expertise. It may be a more objective way of determining eligibility and setting up services because the members of the evaluating team will most likely pass on the clients to the therapists who are considered the therapy providers, who aren't on the evaluating team usually. This can be different in some places where members of the evaluating team are also ongoing therapists as well, though. This would theoretically be a fair and objective way of handling setting up ongoing services, but there is often still some politics that plays into this process, and certain providers may end up getting a larger caseload because of their connections with the evaluating team members. Putting that aside, though, other programs are set up in, term, in teams of providers that covers a certain region in the state or city or county. Those teams contain all of the provider types, OT, PT, speech, educators, etc. And any one of those providers can be trained to provide evaluations. In the state of Missouri, for example, the intake coordinator makes the first face-to-face contact with families. And based on their interview with the family, they determine which provider type would be the best fit for completing the evaluation for that family or child. The provider that completes the evaluation will play a role, along with the rest of the team, the service coordinator, the family, and the evaluator in determining which services will be ongoing. I know that the person who emailed this question to me indicated that the case manager in their area was responsible for determining the type and frequency of therapy services for their clients. I guess I am biased in this and I feel like it should be up to the therapist to, at the very least, make the recommendation to the family and the case manager, again, based on their professional judgment. I know service coordinators or case managers that do not have a therapy background, but have been working in early intervention, setting up and managing services for families for many years. And they also have experience with this, but their experience is largely largely based on 
what the therapists have been recommending over the years. And they just now recognize what we typically tend to recommend in different situations. Let me give you something, some things to consider. First, I look at the results of the evaluation. I will take into consideration how delayed the child is for their age. We can't exactly predict how long it will take for a child to catch up to the expectations for their age. Also, some kids may be demonstrating significant delays according to the standardized assessment, but functionally they might be doing pretty okay in their daily life. If the child has a diagnosis or a significant medical history, this is something that is taken into consideration when determining therapy frequency also. Not that any child given a particular diagnosis will need a specified amount of therapy, but we definitely look at the potential for delays or risk factors for ongoing delays that can be associated with some diagnoses. For example, babies that are born at 32 weeks gestation may be at a higher risk for delays or potential concerns than a baby born at 38 weeks with no diagnoses. This obviously depends on what other health factors play into each of these situations. As you know, babies born at 32 weeks, for example, often have additional health concerns or risks such as retinopathy of prematurity, variation in muscle tone, chronic lung disease, failure to thrive, or general difficulties with weight gain due to feeding issues, etc. A diagnosis isn't a guarantee that the child will need more services than a child without a diagnosis. But when there is a known diagnosis, like I said, we definitely take that into consideration along with all of the other factors in determining therapy frequency. I also know that another huge factor in determining frequency of services is the family dynamic. This can also be difficult to predict and can sometimes be a guessing game, especially in the beginning. Because of this, I tend to err on the side of caution and recommend a higher frequency and intensity of services at the beginning of starting services. I will say that one benefit to being the therapist that completes the evaluation and then returns with the team to participate in writing the initial IFSP or Individualized Family Service Plan is that I, get, I can get a better idea of the family dynamic from the first visit, which is the evaluation, to the second, which is when we have the IFSP meeting. What I look at is when I meet the family for the initial evaluation, I will try to give at least one idea or strategy for the family to consider and hopefully try with their child. In the meantime, before we have the meeting to officially start therapy services, I don't usually give a ton of information at this time because we are still in the evaluation phase, but I am ultimately there to help the family and I know many of them are hoping for some kind of answer or some type of help in that first visit. Most people are eager to get started or get some type of answers or thoughts on how we are going to be able to help them and their child. I understand this and I really like to be able to give them something to get them going in that initial visit. Then 
When we meet to set up the IFSP, I have the opportunity to talk with the family and ask how things are going now since our initial discussion. I can find out this way if they tried the suggestion from the initial visit or if they tried anything related to the things we talked about in that first visit. Since the IFSP meeting often takes place a couple of weeks after the evaluation, I can get a pretty good feel for how much the family is able to take suggestions and roll with them without the support during that couple of weeks. In my opinion, the family should play a role in determining the frequency of therapy as well. Many parents, when asked their thoughts, will say, we want to do whatever you all think is best, or you have a better idea of what you think, you, we are open to whatever you say. But some families will say what they want. They may feel more confident or already have some understanding of what to do and just are just wanting some additional recommendations and suggestions, and they don't necessarily want to have to schedule every week with someone. Some people know that they have a lot of questions and might already feel like they want as much help as we are willing and able to give them until they feel more comfortable with how things are moving along. Based on our professional experiences, a lot of times we will already have a sense of whether or not we will be helping this family until the child transitions to preschool at the age of three, or whether they will most likely make, a, make quick progress and catch up to where they need to be within maybe the next nine months or by the time they are around two or two and a half. The nice thing about early intervention is that services are constantly being evaluated and they can be changed at any time. We like to try and get it right or as close as we can at each meeting so that we don't have to meet too often to make changes, but we certainly can do that whenever necessary. I will say that it is easier, at least where I work, to change from having a lot of services with higher frequency to having less services with less frequency than it is to go from starting with less and adding more. I say that because, for example, if we have OT coming to the house one time per week for 60 minutes each time, and after maybe about four months of doing this, the parent feels like they have a pretty good handle on what to do with their child and they don't feel like they need or want to meet every week anymore. For one, they can just talk to the OT about it, and hopefully this is not a new conversation. Um, a lot of times these are kind of ongoing discussions. But they can let them know what they're thinking and how they're feeling. And we can start by suggesting that maybe the parent tells us they want to cancel next week and just schedule for the following week and start skipping weeks for a little while. This is perfectly fine for the parent to say and the OT can document that the parent's requesting to skip these certain weeks due to whatever the reason, lack of concern, or they're happy with their current progress or something like that. This way, the parent and the therapist can basically do their own trial of reduced frequencies and can pretty quickly figure out if the child continues to make prog progress with this new frequency of therapy <clears throat> or if they start to regress with their skills. If they continue to make progress on the same track or maintain the level of skill that everyone is comfortable with, the parent can request to have a meeting and officially change the services. 
But if they start to feel like their child is regressing or stalled out with progress, then it's pretty easy. Just tell the OT and they, we can start coming out weekly again. And nothing has to change in the IFSP. On the other hand, if you start out with only having OT services set up for, let's say, <clears throat> two times per month at 60 minutes each time, then the parent gets two months into it and is not seeing the progress they were hoping for or they just feel like they need more consistent therapy, this is when they will have to call for another meeting and request to increase the frequency. It's not a difficult thing to do, but it just requires an additional meeting and a little additional time before this can begin, depending on how quickly the meeting can get scheduled with the team. So now that I've gone over some of the things to consider in the process and how it kind of works, let's get into some detailed examples of therapy frequencies for early intervention services. First, as OTs, PTs, and SLPs, our professions are health and science-based. But not everything we do in our jobs is backed by scientific research. We try as much as possible to follow evidence-based practice, but sometimes the evidence is non-existent due to limited research studies on that specific subject. Not necessarily because certain strategies and therapies don't work, but the evidence may not be there due to lack of or limited research on it. With that being said, I was able to find one research study which was based on review of electronic health records and early intervention program records over a two-year period of time. And it does back up what I said earlier about what I call front-loading, or giving more services up front and reducing as appropriate over time. Again, I'm not going to go over all of the specifics in the study, but you can find the link for it in the podcast notes for this episode and read the full report if you want. The report is called Timing and Intensity of Early Intervention Service Use and Outcomes Among a Safety Net Population of Children. They reviewed records of 722 children younger than 35 months with a developmental delay who were involved in the Denver Health and the Rocky Mountain Human Services Early Intervention Program in Denver, Colorado. One of the main factors they looked at for this study was how many days there were from the referral to early intervention to the day when they created the early intervention care plan, which I would call the IFSP. They also considered the intensity of early intervention services provided for each child, which includes total service hours for the duration of the time the child was enrolled in the program for OT, PT, speech, and developmental therapy. Then they looked at the child outcome summary scores, which is a seven-point scale where the team ranks the child's skills in the areas of social relationships, cognition, and adaptive skills, as compared to typical same-age peers. They took the scores from the time the child started in the program to the time they exited for comparison. You may have something similar to this or the same as this in your state. In Missouri, they use the Early Childhood Outcomes, the ECHO, which is a five-point rating scale measuring the same skills that I just listed. 
The results of the study indicated that the children that received more services also had higher gains in these skills as reported on the child outcome summary. They also noted that children who had medical conditions were placed on an early intervention plan approximately two months faster than children without health care needs. Another note was that children who were two years old, just coming into early intervention, were placed on an early intervention plan faster than infants. I have, I have seen this personally as well because there is more of a rush to get their services going since they will be aging out of the program sooner. The study also suggested that greater early intervention service intensity was associated with larger gains in function. I found this to be very interesting with all of the current push towards the coaching model for early intervention. The takeaway from this study is that more services and faster initiation of services leads to better outcomes and higher skills by the time the child is three years old. I'm actually very intrigued by the study because I'm a big believer in the coaching model approach to early intervention. And coaching meaning teaching parents the strategies and activities to help support their child's individual needs. But we also understand that these strategies come from our education and experience in the field in our specific disciplines. And we do need to be there enough time and frequently enough to continue helping the parents as their child continues to make progress and develop. I wonder if this model will evolve into a better mix of what we used to do with the medical model and what many states are doing now, which is the coaching or teaming model. I think combining both concepts where providers are meeting more frequently with the families But the expectation is that we are continuing to coach the parents and working to encourage them to use the strategies that we put out there for them to use with their child and to find ways to make the strategies fit with their family's routines and daily life. That was a bit more of a tangent than I planned, but I will also say that I don't think this happens intentionally, but in my experience, I would agree with the children who have known medical conditions tend to get services initiated fairly quickly. And part of that I can explain. In many states, if a child has a diagnosed condition, specifically one that is known to put them at risk for developmental, physical, or learning delays, they automatically qualify for the program. There is less discussion and testing to determine if they will receive early intervention services because we automatically qualify them right away. We still have to do the initial evaluation to get a baseline of their skills, but there is no time between the evaluation to determining whether or not they qualify since they already have a diagnosis. Even with this, they are not guaranteed to have multiple therapies and high frequency. As I said before, we have to weigh in really where they fall in their skills. How far behind are they with their development at this current time, if any? How old the infant or child is also plays a role. With smaller infants, we often start with one therapist, and this varies depending on their needs. But a lot of times, if the child has global delays, in our program, we will start off with occupational therapy many times, because at that age, we have the knowledge to assess gross and fine motor skills and address any concerns that are, that are there. 
We also tend to have knowledge about feeding issues, and this can also vary depending on the individual provider. But in general, this falls with the OTs in our region, especially with infants who have motor delays because one person can cover all of the bases at that time. As the infant gets older and skills become more specific and delays become more specific, we tend to start adding additional therapists at that time. Generally speaking, and this is general because this is determined on a case-by-case situation, so don't base all of your clients on what I'm going to say next. But you can use this information as general information that might help you in making determinations with families and your teams. So, generally speaking, in my experience, high-risk newborns and infants tend to get one provider one time a week for 60 minutes initially. We add services as needed, if needed, as they age, of course. High-risk babies, maybe around 6 months to 24 months old, often have one provider weekly and possibly an additional therapist two times per month or one time per month. Again, this is not a rule. Just what I've noticed sometimes seems to be how it goes. This is often a combination of two of the three, so either OT, PT, or developmental therapy for that age. In my experience, a lot of times the SLP comes in more around this 24-month time frame or slightly after. Once the child has learned some of the play skills for their age and if they have some imitation skills like imitating gestures, signs, or actions on toys from an adult. This also gives the child an opportunity to learn to walk and become more of an experienced walker. We understand that some, some kids will have a plateau in their language development during the time when they're learning a new significant gross motor skill like walking. By coming in after they have learned how to walk well, we might have a better understanding of whether or not they have a language delay or their language just plateaued as expected during the learning to walk phase. Of course, there are many occasions when an SLP would be needed before that, and if we are working with the child early enough, we can watch for signs of potential language delays before they are going through the walking phase. And also, depending on the individual, if there's feeding issues or feeding concerns, the SLP a lot of times is the person that helps with that. Again, that just depends OT versus speech in um, your area and also depending on the individual's experience. Our developmental therapists tend to focus on teaching the child and family ways to help their, their child learn imitation skills through play. And of course, this is something that all inter- early intervention therapists help with and give parents strategies for also. This isn't always the case, but this is what we often do because the this gives the SLP a place to move forward with strategies for commu- communication skills once they get started with the family. The study mentioned children coming into the program at the age of two, and this more often than not is when they end up being kids that are on the autism spectrum, whether they have a diagnosis or not at that time. In those cases, we do tend to give them more therapists more frequently, for one, because we have a shorter time with them since they came into the program so 
quote-unquote late in their life, but also because they often have not been getting any services anywhere, and these parents are now figuring out that they need a lot of help getting started and figuring out what to do to help their child. It seems to be more helpful to have a variety of therapists getting in and meeting with each other and the family to come at this from all sides and hopefully start making a difference for that child and family as fast as possible. In this situation, we may have a combination of usually OT, SLP, and developmental therapy where all three disciplines come out one time per week or two of them come out one time per week and one other comes out two times per month or something similar to this. However, a lot of times our developmental therapists will also see these families one to two times per week for 60 to 120 minutes each time. This might happen when the child first starts the program to really get to work with them on those play skills like joint attention and also social skills that might be missing or delayed. The idea is to give these families as much information as possible in a short amount of time and help them start to feel like they have a direction, a place to go. Some strategies that they can use right away to help their child. And the family as a whole can learn what they need to do to hopefully make life a little easier or better sooner. There are so many different ways to divide up services that I couldn't possibly give examples for all of them. I think the takeaway is that depending on all of the factors that I mentioned before, like the child's age, the relevant medical history, the family dynamics, evaluation results indicating the severity of delays, there's no one rule for how it should go. Even with 17 years of experience in doing this, I don't always know what the best fit will be right away. I would suggest considering starting off with more, like one time per week and back off over time as you and the team feel is appropriate for the individual situation if you aren't sure where to start. In my experiences in early intervention, the typical options are one time per week, two times per month, or one time per month for 60 minutes. Once I get to a point with the family where their child is doing well and continues to make progress with their development, when we are only visiting one time per month for several months in a row, we also start to look at reducing even more to maybe one time per quarter and just check in for the next six months. And if things are continuing as expected, then looking at discontinuing OT services altogether. You don't have to wean families off this way. You and the family can decide at any point that things are going well and there are no more concerns and maybe the family is feeling comfortable with just discontinuing services. This has happened, but tends to happen less than when families really choose to just slowly cut back over time. I also tend to recommend to those families that want to discontinue therapy services before the child turns three that they go ahead and do that if they want to and everybody feels comfortable with it, but that they continue receiving our service coordination services. And this would mean that our service coordinators, or they're like, case managers in some states would continue to check in with the families and if something comes up before the child turns three and the family has a new concern 
the service coordinator can easily have a therapist come back out and restart therapy with the family. Otherwise, if they discontinue all services, even our case managers, and a new concern comes up before they turn three, the child will have to be re-referred to the program and go through a full initial evaluation again. At that time, the parent may have concerns, but if the child is not delayed enough, they won't qualify to get services again. Whereas when they continue with service coordination only, therapy can be restarted and the child will not have to go through the evaluation process again. They still qualify since their case is still open. I don't know if all states and early intervention programs allow this to happen, but the ones that do allow this, it provides a good safety net for families. I try to encourage the families that I work with to do this just in case something would come up. I'm usually pretty confident that nothing else will come up at that point, but if I was a parent in their situation, that's what I would do. I hope this has given you some things to think about, and I would be very interested to hear from anyone who wants to share how this process works in your state. Please send me an email at allison at mymidwesttherapy.com if you want to share that with me. Just make sure you tell me what state or country that you work in. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.